Daisy original. Paula will make fun of me, but I did modeling too. Mm-hmm. And um, I did some no off, shade, off Paula. Broadway. No, 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 no shade for modeling. I, I never made fun of you for that. Are, are these mics hot right now? <laughs> is, is the question. Hi, everybody, and welcome into Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evan here today with. Dr. Malika Marshall. Hello, Malika. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And Liam Martin. My co-anchor, Liam Yeah, Martin. I am John Keller for today. Great to have you here. I'll try this to be fun. as insightful. <laughs> as insightful, as erudite. And as snarky, too. And as snarky. snarky. I will raise my snark level to the John Keller point. From here to Although here. that is a high bar. Um, so here's what we're talking about on the podcast today. Does Boston have the worst traffic in the United States of America. Should I vote yet? That's going to be one. We're going to talk about it later. Okay, I will reveal later whether I believe that we do. We're also going to talk what will happen if and when Amazon comes to Boston. Of course, they're looking for their second headquarter location. They are inching toward monopoly uh, in their space. Suffolk University professor Kim Wang is going to talk with us about what's happening at Amazon HQ in Seattle and what could be coming here if Boston gets the spot for the second half. And if you're losing sleep over that, we had a really interesting conversation about the fact that you probably don't know how to sleep with Harvard Medical School professor and sleep expert Robert Stickgold. He has really interesting things to say about how to sleep well and to nap effectively. I nap very effectively. Can I say that? Because I have two kids, two young kids, and... I will just fall asleep. It can do the trick. I, I might fall asleep. He gets while into we're doing this. what absolutely does not work, though. Oh, so we'll talk for about naps. That. You mean? Yes. Okay. Very interested to hear that. And then we're going to talk skin cancer rates. Alarming, double the number of skin cancer cases on Cape Cod versus the national average. Massachusetts itself also has a higher average than the nation. So we're going to take a look at why that is. And Dr. Malika Marshall would be very useful. On I'm happy to comment on that. So glad you're here. All right. So let's talk about. Boston traffic right off the top. Uh, Liam was a little delayed yeah, getting in. I he was said he was in the traffic. caught in the traffic. What happened? Well, I live on the South Shore. Mm. Not going to say what town. Hot spot. And uh, mm. no, it, and it's, you know, you would think, so I come in, I, I try to get into work around 2.30. You'd think leaving at 2, I'd be before the craziness. You'd think. But I'm not. Yeah. Not always. Some days yeah. I have an okay ride and other days it takes me can take me an hour. And yeah. you're heading into town. Heading into town. Right? Right. Yeah. You would think the traffic would be you going would in the other way. You would think it would be that way. Is it, it is do not. you see it going both ways when you're driving yep, here? Both ways. Hmm. Both ways. And I, it's I think by one metric. Yes. Chris well, this Dempsey, is the thing. In the Boston Herald, there was an article, Boston has the worst traffic in the country. How would you fix it? It got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And Chris Dempsey, who's the director of the advocacy group Transportation for Massachusetts, uh, cites a study that by one metric, we have the worst traffic in the country. Right. Haven't you heard more and more people recently saying, like you point out, Liam, there is no good time or commuting time. It's all bad all the time now. Whether there you're used to be, store, I feel like just even a few years ago, there used to be good times. Right. And now I know. it's been the past year or so where it's just awful. And it used to die down in the on. summer, right? Yes. And now it or seems like there's vacation only... Week. Mm-hmm. And th- this is interesting. So that metric that Chris Dempsey cites, he mm. says 14% of the drive time mm-hmm. 
for commuters during, uh, you know, height of traffic drive times. 14% is bumper to bumper, meaning that if you're driving in 14% of the time that you're driving, you are in bumper to bumper gridlock. That is the highest percentage in the nation. New York City, 13% of commuting time is bumper to bumper. I find that kind of hard. Uh, 12% in Los Angeles. Mm, Now, by other metrics, New York and Los Angeles and Chicago are worse. Washington, D.C. has terrible traffic as well. But certainly if you drive around Boston... Mm. Uh, any day, as yeah. you're saying, it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you're going to find that it's really bad. And here is the interesting thing for Chris Dempsey. He says a 5% decrease in vehicle volume would reduce congestion by 20%. So just take 5% of the drivers off the roads. And of course, that means the solution is public transportation. That's the thing I did for our Boston Next series in May. I covered transportation. We talked to all kinds of people. And this is the crucial question for Boston coming up. At City Hall, they have this amazing nerve center where at every intersection, when you're sitting frustrated in those lights, they actually will time them. And and they're talking about in the future, in addition to the driverless cars and everything else, uh, the traffic lights will be able to talk to each other so that you'll coordinate, you know, that famous like going down Com Ave, hitting every green light is like the greatest day ever if you can Mm. accomplish that. The the traffic lights in Boston will actually be able to talk to each other. So it will alleviate traffic in one part or another. And the whole driverless car thing, of which Liam is a huge fan, will – factor in coming in the next 20 years Malika are you afraid of it or do you like the idea of the driverless cars I like the idea of it I just want a lot of practice before we put it in the head of new autonomy who we interviewed for the piece said that's why they chose Boston because we're the worst they're, they're experimenting in the seaport with their driverless cars in Boston in Singapore in some of the worst cities in the world for obvious reasons, right? If they, you know, if they can drive here, they can drive anywhere. Um, I do think the do they snow speculate is be an as to factor. why it's so bad for us. Well, we are just such an unplanned city. I mean, I think that, right? Don't you think that's well, part of the why issue? Why is Boston here? so bad? Yes, yeah. unplanned city unplanned and city. public transportation is public terrible. transportation. So, so people are not riding public transportation no. because it's so unreliable. Boom, they go onto the roads instead. The other part of all of this is Uber and Lyft and, mm. and the yeah, ride hailing services. Yeah, they added more cars. Right? People who before either could not afford a car are now in a car mm. driving on those streets, and. People who were otherwise going to be riding public transportation are instead saying, hey, I can get to work for 10 bucks from my apartment uh, on Commonwealth in an Uber instead of having to ride on sloppy public transportation. And there you go. Mm-hmm. I think there was a recent study saying that Uber and Lyft and the ride-hailing services have yes. added some percentage to the amount of traffic yeah, on Boston streets. For I'm reasons. not saying that I ever get irritated on the roads. I'm not going to admit to that. But if I were to get irritated, I have to say that more recently, it's with a car that has an Uber sign in the back where I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> just pull over and let people out <laughs> in the right? street. They, you know, it's they, like they yeah. own the road. I'm yeah. like, what is going on? Right. So it's not yeah. even taxis I get irritated with anymore. It's, it's Uber. It's really true. Well, how many weeks in a row in Washington, D.C. has it been infrastructure week? Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> I mean, Where's every the big... week is infrastructure yeah. week, and they, they've promised a trillion-dollar plan. Mm-hmm. Nothing has happened. You would think infrastructure would be the one that's easy to get done because there's bipartisan oh. support. But the latest proposal from the Trump administration was something like 20% funding from the federal government and 80% on the state's mm-hmm. The cities, mm-hmm. and then some mix in there of right. of private investment, but yeah. 
it's not there. They haven't actually put the proposal forward. They haven't made a bill, and here we are. It's a year and a half into the administration. That's true. It's like replacing pipes or wires in your house. Nobody wants to do right. it because it's not the stuff you see. I tell my husband that all the time. Like, I don't want to hear about that stuff. I don't want to hear about the wiring and the plumbing and the roof or whatever. I want to see the, I want to fix the things that are pretty, yes. <laughs> this is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So we're still waiting for the big decision, right? Amazon, H2Q, uh, Boston is still in the mix and still uh, a potential player here. And so we spoke with Professor Kim Wang. She's at Suffolk University and an expert in tech and innovation management and competition strategy about what will actually happen you know, if Amazon comes here, how it affects the community, the city, and industry, but also in a larger context – will the government have to step in and start breaking up these monopolies if Amazon, Facebook, these big tech starts to really take over? You're saying 44% of e-commerce sales come through Amazon. When you go buy from your mom and pop shop that somehow set up a a website, Mm. oftentimes it's through Amazon's site in a way. You don't realize that. It's through their technology that they have, you know, leased or by whatever deal to this mom and pop shop. So they control an amazing amount of the mm-hmm. online sales infrastructure in the country. And is that what we want? Do we want the monopoly? Yeah. And it's interesting to hear a professor say, in some aspects, we don't know. What does it mean to say that Amazon is becoming a monopoly? It's not difficult to see uh, Amazon becoming a monopoly. Actually, I just came back from Seattle. So I went to their headquarters. I see how they did with Amazon Go. I can see that it's a company that from business to consumer side, you want to dominate pretty much every aspect of consumer. From what we consume uh, in the tangible resources like grocery to intangible resources like uh, video streamings, music, entertainment. And um, so I can see that is like the Amazon's philosophy, it seems to me that um, whatever customer wants, we will provide it to them at a reasonable cost. Um, so I think that's that's how Amazon become the monopoly that, that we have never seen in, in uh, recent history. Well, there, there's only one reason to want to become a monopoly, isn't there? And that's well, along with, you know, your economies of scale, your ability to uh, uh, underprice com- competitors. It's, it's about wiping out the competition, right? Yes, yes. And um, I, I see the beauty of economies of scale here or the synergy is uh, before we only have one business try to dominate one field and they can claim themselves I'm the monopoly in a given field like uh, Standard Oil 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but now what Amazon has is their knowledge about specific consumers. So they know exactly based on my shopping behaviors, they know what kind of customer, what kind of products they want to fit it to me. Mm-hmm. And they know that when they eventually into a new field they know exactly what why they are getting in there because they know they have a bunch of customers they are the existing consumer of that new field so amazon would just go in and they know the demand now they control the supply click right for the first time we've heard mark zuckerberg and charles sandberg after they got in trouble begin to say well of course we should be regulated we should we should have more regulation come in where do you see that going? Do you see the government 
flying in to say, like the robber barons of old, this can't go on anymore? Or is this a runaway train heading down a track that isn't even built yet? The government has a daunting task, in my opinion, because before any kind of uh, monopoly or the the big business, uh, the resources they have is usually uh, visible like uh, oil, for example, or, or going back to uh, the 50s and 60s cars. We see something as physical, so we can count, we can monitor it. But nowadays, you know, what would they have is customer data. And uh, mm. the data could just be used in any shape or form. Uh, it's very difficult to regulate something when you can't see it and, 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 and you, you can't have access to it. You know, we recently saw... Uh, just a couple of years ago, a scenario here in the greater Boston area where a very popular supermarket chain, Market Basket, rebelled against an effort by part of its ownership to uh, basically uh, strip away a lot of the benefits and a lot of the expenditures the company had based its successful model on to maximize profits and yield for its uh, stockholders. Uh, And the workers and some of the managers rebelled. They won. Market Basket, to my understanding, is doing better than ever. Now here comes Amazon uh, buying up Whole Foods, which is is very popular and present here in the market. Uh, Does Market Basket have a prayer of surviving a a war with Amazon? Uh, In my opinion, yes, because um, even though they're in the same retail grocery industries, uh, every industry has different market segments. Um, I could see that uh, Market Basket could operated in the different segments than from Whole Foods. Um, mm. So for examples, like Amazon, apparently my guess of their strategy is uh, they want to dominate their online space. They probably want to do the, the meal kits. So um, something like Blue Apron, like Amazon already wrote this out in the Seattle area, is to mm. deliver the pre, pre-prepared meal kit to, to the home, to your home. Uh, Market Basket doesn't have to do that because to do this requires a huge amount of scale, which I don't think Market Basket wants want to be a part of this game right. uh, they could just be the local family stores it's sort of like um, TV stations you have national TV stations but we also need to have local TV stations yes we do at least one at least <laughs> one we need. exactly so uh, I mean, if I were Market Basket, yes, I'll be worried. But honestly, you're really looking at two different market segments. Well, uh, do you see the federal government stepping in to break up these tech monopolies? And with what consequence? Um, in my opinion, the government has the willingness to step in. But uh, my personal opinion, they do they have the capability to do so is number one, they do not have the data. Say, let's say we are talking about the consumer data. They do not have the data and they have no access of the data. It's not like, you know, I could just go to the gas station to look to monitor how many gallons of gas was sold in one day. Uh, the government need to figure a way to monitor the, the data before they actually talk about regulation. Wow. And it, it seemed impossible for the government to even haul people in front of Congress to answer questions. That was daunting enough. And in the Senate 
hearing, not even asking the right questions and sounding a bit confused in general. So it does sound as though this is going to take uh, another generation of political will to take this on. Yes, uh, they definitely need many more uh, industry experts. Uh, I, I This is not easy because we're talking about a new arena and, mm. and uh, this arena is changing every day. Uh, whatever things you come up today to monitor might not be working tomorrow. Professor, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, since you're fresh back from visiting Amazon in Seattle, as you know, of course, uh, the, we, Boston is one of the finalists for the big second world headquarters of Amazon. Uh, and there's a lot of concern uh, that some of the problems that it has created in Seattle, soaring housing costs, traffic, uh, and other kinds of congestion are coming to an area that already, if we win, quote unquote, that already suffers from uh, those problems. What's your take on that? Is, is it worth the benefits to have Amazon come to Boston on the scale they're talking about or buyer beware? Uh, as a very, very good question. Uh, I was in uh, Amazonville, as they call it, you know, where there's a, a lot of Amazon buildings just cluster on the north side of Seattle. Yes. Uh, I thought I'm in, you know, some developing countries because I see cranks in every corner. Uh, I don't think Boston has the resources in terms of our land to be available for that scale of constructions. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know the exact scales, but I figure this is like the half Boston is, is what it takes to build the Amazon second headquarter. Mm. Uh, from purely from the business school and technology management perspective, I would like to welcome their arrival if they decided to start the second headquarters at Boston. I think this is good for the economy in the long term. And uh, I'm very optimistic. I would like to say that maybe that's the stimulus we need to really change our urban planning. Because currently our urban planning is, uh, in my opinion, lagging behind. It's really like, this is a problem, let's try to fix it. Maybe the arrival of Amazon will give the system a shock mm. that, that will make people turn their head around and say, you know what, we are going to do something drastic, not just coping with the problem. Well, it, it's interesting that you talk about urban planning because one thing that has caught my attention is Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, who built the new Salesforce Tower, the largest, tallest building in San Francisco, made sure that he took the company's own money to rebuild the BART station beneath the building because mm. as a native San Franciscan, he said you cannot inject tens of thousands of workers into downtown San Francisco without participating in uh, revitalizing the infrastructure. And so perhaps you're right that if these huge uh, companies like Amazon do come into a city like Boston, they are going to have to participate in rebuilding our public transportation and other aspects of the infrastructure. I agree. I agree. It's, um, it's, we need money to expand and maintain our infrastructures. And those big companies, now if they come here, we can tell them you're a part of the team. That's and, right. And uh, put in your efforts. And, and because you do uh, siphon resources from us, you know, our people, uh, most importantly, our resources. So, you know, now is your time to contribute. And honestly, the Amazon is, is, is a business with very high uh, corporate social responsibilities. I believe they want to do something like that. It's a showcase to them, too. And yet, uh, Professor, we've seen how, uh, except what you say about Amazon, but we've seen in the case of Facebook, 
perhaps not such a uh, heightened sense of of social responsibility in terms of decisions they've made. I guess one concern I have is just as we worry about monopolies taking over an industry and you know it's a scorched earth policy for the com- would be competitors and for constraints that people might want to put on it i'm concerned that a company generating 50,000 jobs uh, average wage in the low six figures even in a place like boston could come in and be so politically powerful that we're left to rely wholly on their beneficence and their social responsibility, because if they started to go off the rails, we we couldn't necessarily do a damn thing about it. Uh, gee, that's a very good question, and that's a real concern, because I think currently the Seattle's economy does become heavily dependent on a given set of company, Amazon and Microsoft in particular. Uh, but I would like to argue the difference between Boston and Seattle. That Seattle started out with no major business. So, you know, before Amazon, it was Starbucks. Mm. Uh, before Starbucks, it's probably REI. Or Boeing, um, yeah. If, mm. if you look at Boston's, we have our our, our own histories of long track, long track mm. history of business. Um, I agree that Amazon is going to be big, but we have other major business already taking their roots very deep in this town. I don't think it would be like that. Always the benefit of medicine and the universities, which exactly. sustain Boston over the long term. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, all those higher education institutes are here to stay, and uh, it's not that easy. Professor Wang, fascinating topic. If you don't mind, I think we'd like to check back with you a little bit down the road, maybe after Amazon makes their big decision and resume this conversation then. No problem. I'd be very happy to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, John. It's the unexpected. It's not knowing what's going to happen. That's the problem. Uh, last year, we lost our video. This guy, so his premise, um, and Malika, so not like not as a doctor, but just as a human being, you can weigh in. <laughs> he runs the no, center. Because we are not. I mean, as a doctor, she, yes. I know she doesn't like to do that, be put on the spot. But no, okay. this is the guy who maintains that he thinks naps are good and helpful to people, but you cannot... Um, curate your sleep like do the big sleep on the weekend and it's going to help you catch up yes right the there's no such thing as right up. exactly and Although so we this reported is what, a study yes. a couple of weeks ago yeah it wasn't on your show i don't think yeah. Yeah, no. that suggested that you can actually mm. make up some sleep on the weekend he but, maintains huh. that you and can't. what like what were the details of that mm. i'd have to go back and yeah yeah and and review it yeah. but um but it, and, it did sort of fly in the face of conventional wisdom it kind of makes really sense to up. me that you could do some that in people I, I'm, I, I don't remember all the nitty-gritty details but people who get less than six hours of a sleep a night yeah. during the week can sort of sleep in on the weekends and actually right. regain and some of the and he talks about it as a precursor to depression that makes people pre-diabetic that they gain weight the people l- just who are lack overtired of sleep in people who oh, people who like go terrible. go go Monday through Friday but then think that that, that really there isn't some bank that you're putting oh, into I got what you're saying that he's Look, saying it chemically affects the, the body. latest uh, research on sleep deprivation is that there's a link between it and dementia yes yeah well and, and he, and all he of talks that about depression Forgetfulness. Sleep time, you're cleaning the brain in a way as right. you're sleeping. So you're, listen to Dr. Robert Strickold, and uh, he's a professor at Harvard Medical School. So 
We think he knows what he's talking about. He is a, he's in charge of the Division of Sleep Medicine and the director of the Center of Sleep and Cognition. So the doctor has interesting things to say about when nap is, napping is effective and when trying to catch up on the weekends is not. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. So, um, all along, doctor, I thought that if... I could just make it to the weekend. I could sleep late. I could doze off in my lazy boy in the afternoon, and that would refresh me and make up for all the sleep deprivation during the week. I was fooling myself, right? You you weren't fooling yourself because you didn't know. But you but right, you you can't make it up on the weekend. Mm, that's interesting. What what is it, doctor, about our system? that makes it impossible to sort of, I love your phrase, to engage in sleep bulimia uh, so that you're, you know, purging yourselves on some day and binging on others. What is it that doesn't work about with that, with the human body? Well, first to step back and say that what does work with making up sleep on the weekend is you can sort of cure your temporary sleepiness. Mm. So if you've been dragging yourself through the week, feeling tired because you're sleeping short nights. When you get extended sleep on the weekend, you will again feel refreshed and rested, which is why most people think it works. And the problem is that sleep is just is not just about curing our sleepiness. When we sleep, our brain and our body uh, are carrying out lots of critical functions. And some of these are, are time-locked to to the events of our day. So for example, um, maybe the simplest example is if you get a hepatitis vaccination or a flu vaccination and then don't get any sleep the next night, your your body is only going to produce half as much antibody to those um, possible infections as it normally would. Mm. Your brain and your body has to be able to take advantage of sleep within within 24 hours of those vaccinations for you to get the most benefit from them. So, doctor, I want to get to the bottom of napping. I am the world's worst napper. I'm so jealous of my dog, uh, the way she can just go out and stay out. Uh, I, when I am able to nap, I, it feels like I'm either out for too short a period of time to realize any benefit, or I snap too long and I feel like I'm 20 feet underwater. What's the truth about how to nap your way to better health? So napping absolutely is beneficial uh, in terms of our studies with with sleep and memory. A 90-minute nap seems to often be able to give as much benefit as an eight-hour night. Hmm. The, The trick with napping is you want to get enough sleep, and that's probably a half hour to an hour at least. And then the trickiest part is you don't want to wake up out of what we call slow-wave sleep, which is your deep phase of sleep. It sounds like you wake up out of deep sleep, and when you wake up out of deep sleep, you are you feel hungover. When, when you wake up from sleep, it always takes you a while to come back to to full alertness and full functionality. But that's usually on the order of five minutes or so. When Mm. you wake up out of deep sleep, uh, and especially if it's out of deep sleep following um, sleep deprivation or sleep restriction, it can take a half hour or an hour 
before you you come back to to full alertness and full functioning. So if you wake up from a nap after say an hour and find yourself feeling really hungover, you either want to shorten that nap back to about 35 or 40 minutes or on the other hand you can lengthen it to an hour 20 say so that you get to the other side of that that cycle of deep sleep. And while we're on the topic, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm going to uh, out myself as a real loser here, but sometimes I'm so desperate to take a nap on the weekend, I'll do something which I ordinarily don't do, which is I'll drink a beer in the middle of the day, hoping that will knock me out. But that's not, that that's not help, smart, right? is it? Using alcohol to, to help you sleep is generally a, a, a losing proposition. Yeah. Hmm. Um, there's two reasons for that. First of all, Alcohol is a suppressor of REM sleep. So if you drink before you go to sleep, then you're going to suppress your REM sleep. And that's a critical part mm. um, of your night or of your nap, the, the rapid eye movement sleep. So that's that's downside number one. Um, downside number two, especially at night, is that whereas alcohol will allow you to fall asleep more quickly, when you get to the second half of the night, you'll find that you're having a lot of awakenings. Yes. Um, as a result of having drunk the alcohol. And so mm-hmm. in the end, you spend more time awake and more time trying to fall asleep than if you had just bitten the bullet and gone to bed without alcohol in the first place. Let's talk for a second about Ambien and drugs of that nature. We hear a lot about it in the news when people do yep. things they shouldn't do because they've taken an Ambien. But from what I understand, uh, you are not... A, you're not it's not as successful as sleep because you are sedated under those drugs you're not asleep is that correct well ambient in particular um has an unusual characteristic which is that it causes amnesia so if if you take an ambient it might take you an hour to fall asleep but the next morning you'll only think it took you five or ten minutes to fall asleep because you're literally amnestic for the mm. rest of the hour that's usually not such a problem unless you're sleeping with your partner and you make love during that time and you make clear in the morning through what you say that you have no memory of it that can lead to some displeasures it's not a good call unless you're comfortable sleeping out back in the yard (laughs) for just a few weeks (laughs) (laughs) well i gotta tell you dr strickgold i uh anchored the morning news here at wbz for eight years so i consider myself a little bit of a uh, cottage industry sleep expert just from what i and you got up at what time and by the way it was a fantastic experience i am not complaining whatsoever about being so lucky to have such a phenomenal job. However, uh, getting up at 2.30 a.m. Oh. Uh, over time, every day, uh, with and I, have, I had four small children at the time, oh, uh, was, was challenging, especially as time went on. When I got into year five, six, seven of doing that, you could definitely feel the the you know your your memory is absolutely impacted. I would feel chilly during the day. Um, you you know you're sort of always in a little bit of a fog. And there's no way to nap your and, way and out of you that. Can, I found over time not to nap in the afternoon to just stay up all day and go to sleep at eight o'clock at night to sleep till you know two thirty because if you napped then you can't get to sleep at night. Does so that make you sense? Put on weight well. And put on weight. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, no, Which I have successfully lost since. <laughs> 
Right now I'm in Baltimore at the annual Sleep Society meetings and the the uh, keynote address was this morning by a woman, Ev Van Carter, who was talking about how shift work um, leads to shortened sleep, leads to shorter quality sleep, uh, leads to weight gain, leads to a drift towards diabetes. Um, there are all sorts of metabolic consequences um, as well as the cognitive ones. You can feel it. You absolutely yeah. can feel it. Doctor, as a, as a culture, are the, are are sleep problems getting worse? I've, I've read a lot about the effect of the smartphone, how staring at the damn thing. Having when it in bed with you. When you're in bed, having it by the bed is a disaster for quality sleep. Is that true? It's absolutely true. It has been getting worse and worse. And the culture, the culture loves it getting worse. I, I tell the story of Bill Gates. Uh, who was quoted as saying that his programmers were so dedicated that if they had a deadline coming up, they would program 72 hours straight with no sleep. And I just looked and I said, yeah, and the product was Windows. (laughs) (laughs) Valid point. It's a a little bit like um, the current version, the modern version of, of, of drinking when you're drunk. You know, it was a real macho thing to be able to drink when you were drunk. And now the macho thing is, I only need five hours Oh, yeah, they always talk about highly successful, productive people like Martha Stewart and Jack Welch would brag they only sleep four hours a night. Well, the president makes a similar claim, I believe, yeah. I'm not going to talk about short sleep and psychiatric conditions, but it's probably not irrelevant in the case of Trump Mm -hmm. that a lot of his hyperactivity, a lot of his... Um, uncontrolled, un- uncensored behavior can be a direct consequence of short sleep. The early morning tweeting, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. wow. Doctor, thank you very much for your time. We'll let you go back to your nap. Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't mind one myself. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people. Uh, knowledge is a great weapon. I want to turn now to an alarming new study from Blue Cross Blue Shield of skin cancer rates in the United States, which finds that the rate of cases in Massachusetts is among the highest in the nation. And specifically on Cape Cod, 8.6% of residents in the Barnstable Yarmouth area, according to this study, are diagnosed with skin cancer. That is double the national average. Mm. Uh, It is of communities in the United States, it is tied for fourth highest of mm-hmm. any community in the United States. The top three are in Florida, and then there's Cape Cod. And Dr. Malika Marshall is sitting in with us today. Does that surprise you for us to be fourth? It does surprise me that it's fourth. Um, I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and I know that there's been some speculation that it might have to do with the demographics of the area, mm-hmm. that um, you know people who have lighter complexions are mm-hmm. obviously at higher risk of developing skin cancer and so that may play a role. Um, I also want, I was wondering, because we have such awful winters, if Mm. when the sun does come out, people kind of go out and soak it up and think, I haven't had any sun all year round. I don't really And you don't think about the reflection off the snow, which they always talk about. Exactly, the snow, although there aren't a lot of skiers in Cape Cod, but maybe they go up and No, but just, you know, people who live in our area. You're not putting on sunscreen in the winter. Right. I, n- I never put on sunscreen in the winter. I do. And you I do? suggest yes. you do. I do yeah. on my face. I do. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of women do. Yes. Skiing. When they wear a certain Skiing, I totally well, do. Yeah. 
I haven't been skiing. But yeah. you're right. Reflection off the snow, reflection off the water, mm-hmm. and maybe sort of more of a carefree attitude. I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, Dr. Nash, uh, Dr. Bruce Nash, who was in and we talked to on the 8 o'clock news, says here, these numbers are obviously alarming and we're often ranked as one of the healthiest states in the nation. But we clearly have more uh, work to do to educate people about the risk of skin cancer, especially on the Cape. And, uh, you know, you encourage people to go outside to be healthy and be active. But um, And then we talk about vitamin D, right? We talk about how people in New England often are deficient in vitamin D because we don't have the sun exposure year-round. So I know people are sort of getting mixed messages out there. I'm still just Um, stuck on in the winter. I'm supposed to be putting sunscreen on my yeah, face. Yeah, put moisturizer. Well, with a moisturizer in with it. a sunscreen in it. I think the there are probably more products this is marketed news. to women, yes. especially this because you're from. News. Do you put a moisturizer Your ancestry. on? I put a moisturizer on. So, I don't want to talk about but, my skin but it should, routine, but it should have it's probably SPF in more, it. more is it complicated? Uh, elaborate than it should be. <laughs> okay, yes, but, but he's an TMI, anchor. But, but he's an anchor. Man. But exfoliate um, then moisturize everyone. You a three-part system, Leo? No, no. Uh, Is Creme de la Mer involved? (laughs) Moving on. Um, I'm going to stop the show until you tell us what your skincare. (laughs) What's your skincare regimen? It's it's not all that complicated. You you spill it. You you clean the the makeup. I I have to wear makeup. This is going very badly. (laughs) You know what? This is because now there's makeup being involved. I think most people understand that you wear makeup. makeup. We we do wear makeup. Do you exfoliate? You take that off with an exfoliating cloth. Yes. At night before you go to bed. Yes. Presumably. Okay. Then wash with a gentle soap. <laughs> okay. So you don't want, if we're going to go all in on yes, this, I'm going to go all in. Please, please. You know, sensitive skin soap. Okay. okay. Don't go using the abrasive antibacterial no, soap. Never, yeah. right. Uh, and and then a moisturizer. Mm-hmm. At night. Yes. At night. Now, what well, do you do? I, I, I bet I a lot of men don't moisturize at night. That's my guess. Well, I, I I do I moisturize anytime I wash my face because okay. it dries out your skin. Feel dry. Okay. Now buy that moisturizer with an SPF of at least. But I day. like my moisturizer. Well, I you can wear that at I night, they... but during the day, choose yes. a different one. I have my favorite brand, which I will tell you about after the show. So I'm not promoting mm-hmm. a company, but <laughs> I've been using my it for 20 uses. plus years. Mm-hmm. It's light, and it's got an SPF. You can buy one with an SPF of 15 or 30. Okay. Oh, here's my question. Do you think um, it's nonsense, SPF over 30? You know, you'll see some bottles that say 70 or 100. We just recently What's talked about this as, as as well. There was a recent study suggesting that SPFs of 100, because you're going to pay yes. a lot a lot more money for a sunscreen with an SPF of 100 versus 15 or 30. Uh-huh. Um, but they did, they did a study in skiers in Colorado, if I remember correctly, and they found that the side of the face that got the SPF 100 versus SPF of something mm-hmm. much lower on the other side um, was much better protected. Wow. So, you know, the, the number sort of reflects how long you can stay outside in the sun without getting a sunburn. So Before SP- you have to reapply. Exactly. Right. So 100 suggests that you can be out a lot longer than mm-hmm. an SPF of 15. So, I mean, my advice is I still like SPF of 30 or greater. Yes. Um, just because people don't reapply it as often as they should, right? And they yeah. don't reapply it when they get out of the pool or out of the ocean mm. as often as they should. Yeah. So if you're using it perfectly, like we all should be doing, then yes, an mm. SPF of 15 or 30 is probably adequate, but most of us don't. Here's my big concern. Yes. And I know there are a lot of people that I grew up with, who I'm sure you had this happen to, from, you know, your sort of late 70s, 80s children. My mother, you know, you would go to the Cape, we'd be on the beach at Falmouth, 
there was maybe some copper tone lying around. Mm. I had sisters who would slather. Uh, and, you know, we have very fair Irish complexions. I had sisters who would be slathering baby oil on their and faces. And the copper tone and often putting, was oil. Yes, and putting tin foil on this albums, cooking record their skin. albums. Literally cooking Literally their skin. to get a tan. And the Dr. Nash was pointing out, if you got one of those horrible lobster red sunburns as a child on the Cape where you blistered, I totally did. I know my siblings and friends You're all much did. higher risk. And you were then you were peeling later, and you bought solar cane. You're at higher risk, and for that's skin why cancer. we're and there's seeing, no going back and fixing that damage. We're seeing the skin cancers now yes, from that, yes. right? So it's not the 18 year olds, the 20 year olds who are trying to tan and going to the tanning beds who oh, are that's getting the, the skin cancer. They're getting it in their fourth decade, their fifth decade, and when they're much yeah. older. So that's why it's a really important reminder to parents that the sun exposure that their kids are getting now yeah. is really going to make a difference to whether they develop skin cancer later on. Mm. So protect your babies as well. Um, yes. And I think, I hope that a lot of parents are getting that message now. No, I know. I'm, I'm a nut with my kids with it. Yes. I'm oh, constantly yeah. slathering them. But we can, can we get back to your exfoliation? Let's go back no. to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, you guys, this was really fun. This was great. It's great to have you up here in the yeah, Studio BZ studio. It was my second time. Yeah, how was it? John, first time. John got me somehow talking about how I met my wife, and we really? started talking about love and the meaning of it and, and all that. And now and now this time, my skin. <laughs> and now your skin. So, it's <laughs> called <laughs> authenticity. That's right. Heard lots of ground. It's called oh, your we human. What did you think, Malika? Oh, I I had a really good time because I this is only my second time, and the first time we were talking about there goes something boring, something (laughs) medical. But you only had me talk about the medical thing, so I didn't get to weigh in on stuff like we we traffic and Amazon and yeah, I really enjoyed it. Please have me back. So we have guys. About a hundred, over 140 subscribers at this wow, point. Wow, there right? you go. The number is growing. Triple I digits. I had an air horn sound effect. <laughs> Jonathan Case, is key, our producer, is keeping track. So we want people to subscribe, tell your friends. It's available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Twitter, hand, Twitter handle is at StudioBZPod. My favorite thing about hosting this with John is he said that we have a Twitter website, <laughs> Studio BZ Pod, when we were here. We have a website, Studio BZ That's Pod. That's awesome. Um, but give your Twitter handle in case anybody wants to see it. Liam say WBZ. And at Malika Marshall. I'm willing to give any recommendations about skincare. There you go. Um, no. He can talk about modeling, his no, acting career. Definitely none of that. At Harvard. <laughs> uh, I'm at Paula Evan WBZ, and we would love to hear suggestions, what you like, what you don't like. And we'll end with our tagline We'll, we'll be seeing you. Come on, everyone loves that. I know. At this point. I think that's it's cute. It's so corny. It's it comes cute. around. I think it's corny. It does. Yes, it does. It's, it's so bad. It's retro. Yes. Yeah.